Why don't we all stand? We're going to read from Scripture. And um, just before we do that, um, most of you know the Depolas, uh, Rick and Christina. And um, uh, Christina is uh, battling cancer right now, and it's um, just she continues to decline. Is um, just kind of all I'll say. There are a lot of details involved in that, but her health continues to decline, um, and just her strength continues to decline. And so, uh, Grace and I, and a few of you have just been, um, I think, in constant communication with them, trying to come around them. Um, Rick texted me this morning, and I actually didn't know when I was going to share and how I was going to do it, but Rick just simply said this. He said, tell the people whatever God has ordained is right. It's a song we often sing together. He says, and although these are words from just a man, they attempt to explain as best as I can what we begin to know about our God, this life, our body, this journey. The, the Tipolas are walking this journey of suffering uh, just with incredible faith and consistency, and I think they need our prayers uh, now more than ever. And so um, I ask that we would continue to pray for God to do a miracle, because God can do anything, and we believe that. We believe that God called the world into existence Paul says that God is, is, he's the God who raises the dead. He's the God that calls the things that are not as though they are. God can call life into being. There's nothing too hard for him. And yet at the same time, we know we live in a broken and fallen world. And the gospel tells us that God has entered into this broken and fallen world to redeem us. So that death is not the final story. It's not the end. But he will make all things new. And we will say finally, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? But, for now, so it is. And so, we ask that you would be praying for Christina's comfort, because she's in a lot of pain. And we ask that you would be praying for Rick, for his comfort and his peace, and for their four children. Um, So, let's just do that quickly, um, and then we'll get into our study. So, Father, we come to you, Lord, the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort. Lord, you are not far away. Scripture tells us that you are near to the brokenhearted. Lord, as we sing this morning, you have walked this path of suffering, of death before us. Lord, you walk with us today. We believe that, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, even now for Christina, Lord, we pray for your presence to be there. Walking with her. I think of Psalm 23. As you lead your people through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, for you are with us. And we pray, Lord, that she would experience that presence even now and the comfort that your rod and your staff bring. Lord, we pray that Rick would experience your presence, you walking beside him as he walks beside his his wife and watches her body break down and 
Pray, Lord, that you would walk with their children and comfort them, Lord. And, Lord, we pray ultimately, Lord, that you would bring deep and lasting hope to the Depolas. And, Lord, if it be your will, Lord, we pray, God, that you would touch and heal Christina. Even at this 11th hour, Lord, you can turn the tide, and we believe that, Lord. And so we commit them into your hands. And, Lord, as for us, we pray, Lord, that we would comfort one another. Lord, that we would bear one another's burdens as we deal with suffering, mourning, grieving, death, and we deal with just the normal things of life. Um, Help us, Lord, and help us to help one another, we ask. We ask these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. We're going to read from 2 Peter Uh, Chapter 1, starting in verse 16 this morning. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration, of course. And we have something more sure, a prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if this is your first time at Refuge, uh, welcome. Um, Sorry, we had a lot of long announcements this morning. Um, We try to be careful about how many of those usually are. Uh, But we're taking this whole month, the month of January, to talk about the Bible. And this is part of our kickoff of the Year of Biblical Literacy. So just a show of hands, how many people are doing Year of Biblical Literacy? Okay, this is awesome. And how great is this, right? A couple of us went out the other night, I think there were six of us, and we... This group, we often talk about what the Lord's doing in our life. We fellowship, we share, you know, struggles and what have you. But what was so cool is that everyone was talking about the same passage of Scripture, and we were literally on the same page. And it was just such a unique thing, you know, to talk about Moses and the Levitical law and be like, yeah, I was thinking that too. And so just the communal aspect of what we're doing is so powerful. And I encourage you, if you aren't on board with your biblical literacy— Think about it, please. Like, get on board. This is just such an awesome way to fellowship with one another. And we're going to talk about this again this morning, but it is so important as God's people that we know what the Scripture says firsthand. And so we're taking this month to really talk about the Bible because a lot of us have what's called dogma. And what dogma is, is you've taken a teaching of scripture and you've just bent it just a little bit or someone has for you and what happens is over time that trajectory right it's off 
It is actually not what the Bible teaches. And the church is full of dogma, unfortunately. We just experienced this in our men's group. Uh, we, we read a chapter on hell. And the writer of this book was just saying, most American Christians think the story of the Bible is about heaven and hell. That that's what the gospel is about. And this is, this is a fascinating fact. The Bible never once mentions heaven and hell in the same verse. Never. The story of the Bible is about heaven and earth and how God made heaven and earth. It was, it was tainted by sin and chaos and death now, but he sent Jesus the Redeemer and he will recreate a new heaven and a new earth. He will make all things new. That's what the story of the Bible is about. And that has caused at least our men's group, to step back and be like, hold on, where did I get this idea that the Bible talks and describes hell so much? And it's like, these are the two kind of paths in the book of the Bible, or in the book of the Bible, in the Bible, heaven and hell. Now, the Bible does talk about hell. It does. And and you have to do gymnastics to try to get rid of hell with the Bible, right? But the point is, we've started carrying all this baggage Where do we get it? We didn't get it from the Bible. So it's so important that we, as God's people, read the Bible. Because here's the thing, guys. The culture that we're in right now is doing deconstructionism with your faith. Let's beat them to it. Okay? Because people in the culture now are using the Bible to attack Christians. And the problem is no Christians actually know. Not no Christians. Few Christians really know what the Bible says firsthand. So we talked about the problem of the Bible in the first week. We talked about the reason for the Bible. What is the Bible for? What's the Bible about? What's it supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with it? And last week, we talked about the authority of the Bible. And we said this. We kind of summarized authority, and I'll do it again. The Bible is God's authoritative word and instruction given to God's people that we might live out the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That God's ways, his character, his truth, his justice, his righteousness, and his shalom, his peace, would be seen by the world. And it would be seen through the church. It would be seen through Christians. And the authority of Scripture really has to do with living under God's kingdom, reign, and rule. So as God's people, Scripture where God instructs us in this way of life, has to become the number one source of information and truth for our lives. It has to. It has to become the greatest influence in our lives as followers of Jesus. And that is really, I think, at the base level, what we mean by authority of the Bible. We're living out and living under the authority of God. But this begs the question... How are we sure that what we have in our hands is the actual word of God? Right? Hasn't the message been changed over time? Hasn't it been corrupted? And this is the claim of Islam. This is the claim of the Jehovah's Witness. This is the claim of Mormons and many Christian cults and, and many people um, in academia, right? Hasn't the Bible gotten lost in translation? Right? So we've been talking about the Bible for the last few weeks, and maybe we should have started with this topic of origin, right? But so it is. Um, and I'll, I'll just say one last thing, one last disclaimer before I start teaching. Everyone needs to do themselves a favor and go to the lecture part 
of the Year of Biblical Literacy website. All right, so there's a, a list of resources there, and there's lectures that were done in other churches. Go watch Tim Mackey's teaching on or lecture on the canonization because he is um, actually thoroughly learned in this, and you will benefit greatly. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm not that well-versed in this stuff, so I'm going to do my best attempt at talking about the origins of the Bible, but go listen to him. I mean, fascinating slides and facts. It's, it's just it's great. It's encouraging. So go, go listen to that sometime this week. So let's talk about the origins of the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? Who wrote the Bible? Now, I want to read you something I found online, and I think this is kind of to display what I was talking about a minute ago about the, the dogma, right? Um, this is what most Bible colleges teach and what most conservative Christians believe. So the question, who wrote the Bible, is a question that can be definitively answered by examining the biblical text in light of the external evidences that support its claim. 2 Timothy 3.16 states, all scripture is inspired by God. 2 Peter 1.20-21, Peter reminds the reader to know that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of someone's own interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It goes on, the Bible itself tells us that it is God who is the author of this book. He goes on, God does not leave us with just claims of his divine handiwork in the Bible, but also supports it with compelling evidence. The design of the Bible itself is a miracle, written over more than 1,500 years by vastly different writers, yet every book in the Bible is consistent in its message. These 66 books talk about history, prophecy, poetry, and theology. Despite their complexity, differences in writing styles, and vast time periods, the books of the Bible agree miraculously well in theme, facts, cross-referencing. No human being could have planned such an intricate combination of books over 1,500-year time span. Now, end quote, Thank, sorry. Where much of that, of what is said here is true, I think that this is misleading. The way the question is answered doesn't actually look at the Bible and what the Bible says about how it was written. We just quote Peter and Timothy, and which is, Something we have way later, right? It wasn't written around the same time as the Pentateuch, is what I'm trying to say. And what he's talking about here, it just compiles factual data of scriptural consistency and congruency. It leaves us with this impression of a golden tablet type of inspiration. What are you talking about? Well, Mohammed taught that golden tablets came out of heaven. And that's how he knows that he has the word of Allah. It has not and cannot be corrupted. And, and um, Muslims would even say, even English, that is not the Quran. You can't really understand God's word unless you read it in the original. That is the word of God. Jehovah's Witness, or sorry, uh, Mormons also make this claim, right? Joseph Smith, golden tablets that came down. Where did you get this? Oh, they came from heaven, right? So there's, there's no background, there's no evidence, you know, of, you know, a priest coming to the Americas, you know, way, way back when, as the Book of Mormon claims, because it all came in golden tablets that can't be tainted from heaven to us so we can know that this is really God's word. And I think sometimes Christians, we, we've adopted this idea of the Bible, 
that the Bible is also a golden tablet type of thing, that God inspired the writers of Scripture, but almost like because he needed someone's hands to do it. You know, like God wrote the Bible, but he just needed a human hand to help him. And that's all that was, right? So basically, this is what we believe, right? The Bible is written by God and zombies. God just takes over people's brains and they're like, holy crap, what did I just write? That's amazing, right? I can't believe that. I wrote that? Yeah, you wrote that. Good job. God wrote the Bible through zombies, bypassing their brains and personalities and their context. But what do we actually find in the Bible? What does the Bible say about itself? So we'll talk about that in a second. There are two things wrong with the golden tablet view of biblical inspiration. The first one is is that it's wrong. (laughs) Uh, The second is that it's what we call a power play. The Bible is written by God. Is your book written by God? I didn't think so. Bow. Obey. Don't question. Don't challenge. It's a power play. You must submit, obey, no questions asked. And this is the way inspiration has worked for many years. And many people have come out of the church and been disillusioned. They come out of a background where they weren't taught to wrestle with the scripture and to ask questions. They weren't allowed to. And this is the problem, guys, is that all it takes is a somewhat careful reader of the Bible to see that this isn't true. That this isn't the way the Bible was written and and put together. And many people who grew up in the church being taught this view or thinking this way, they go off to college, take a class on you know, classic literature, poetry, or textual criticism, and begin looking at the actual facts about how the Bible was put together, and all of a sudden their whole faith is unraveled. They don't know what they believe. They don't know who they can trust. And this is sad on so many levels. Church, this is why the year of biblical literacy, or just reading the Bible consistently all the way through is so important. Know your Bible. Know what it teaches and says about itself for yourself. So then what are the true origins of the Bible? Now, let me just say this. I believe, just in case you're like, oh, who, who told me this was a safe place, right? I believe the Bible is a divine book. Absolutely. I, 100%, actually. And let me also say this. I believe that the Bible is 100% a human book. Like, oh, okay, that doesn't work, Char. Well, Peter, he says, right, in, in 1 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, above all, do well to remember this, no prophecy of scripture ever comes by the prophet's own imagination, for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse, rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What Peter is saying here is not that people were in a trance, and that's how, sometimes how we translate it, he doesn't tell us exactly what this looked like, how it happened, His point is that no one sat down one day and said, I'm going to write the Bible. I'm I'm feeling inspired. I'm just going to write my thoughts about God. That's not what the Bible is. It's not just something made up out of thin air, some person's imagination or some person's agenda. That's actually what Peter's talking about. Now, if you look at the book of Hebrews, the author does something incredible. 
The author refers to Psalm 95 as an example and applies two authors to the psalm. We first read, The Holy Spirit said, Do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. It's remembering the time of the children of Israel being in the wilderness. And then a few verses later, the writer of Hebrews, quoting the same passage, says, Well, you remember David said. The Holy Spirit said, quote Psalm 95. You remember David said, quote Psalm 95. So who is it? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it David? And I think what the Bible is trying to tell us, both are true. Hebrews accents the dual authorship uh, and concurrent authorship of Scripture. And this is what the historical stance is on inspiration. The Bible is both divine and human in its origin. And rather than being a contradiction, this is actually exactly what we believe about Jesus of Nazareth. So this isn't some like unheard of thing that Christians just kind of like pull out of their back pocket like, oh, it's both. What we believe that Jesus was fully human and fully God, right? That's what we believe. And somehow was able to hold both of those together and not one trumped the other. Not one was more than the other. He was both and held these things together. We have this fancy word for it and nobody, I won't. I don't know if most people know what it means, but we call it hypostatic union. And it's just like this like, thing that's just holding Jesus' divinity and his humanity together. And the church has held this for many, many, many centuries. And so we believe the same about the Bible. The Bible is divine and fully human. It's not one way or the other. And any time we pit these against each other we're just plain wrong and we get into all sorts of theological problems this comes from uh, the Roman Catholic Church Uh, it's a it's a great definition of inspiration though listen it says while the books of the Bible were written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and so have God as their author their source their human writers still made use of their own powers and abilities acting as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things which God wanted. That comes from the Roman Catholic dogmatic, don't be led astray by the word dogmatic, (laughs) constitution on divine revelation. So I want to say this textual criticism, though many see it as an attack on the scriptures, can really help the church get away from dogma and back to orthodoxy, drive us back to the Bible to say, what does the Bible actually say about itself, about authority. What does the Bible say? Let's go to the Bible and see what it says about authority. What does the Bible say about inspiration? Let's go to the Bible and see what it says about inspiration. So let's look at the Bible and see what it says for itself. So how does the Bible tell us it was put together? It might surprise you in a very, very human way. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and you just read it if you're doing the Year of Biblical Literacy. Uh, the first time God tells someone to write the Bible is actually not Genesis 1-1. Right? That's not how it works. God wasn't like, all right, take note. Here we go, angels. Right? Golden tablets. Let's get them ready. And he doesn't sit a prophet down and say, all right, we're going to start from the beginning. Stay tuned. Right? This is really interesting. Exodus 17. It's also recorded in Deuteronomy 25. The story is the children of Israel, I I told this, but I'll tell it again. 
The children of Israel are in the wilderness. They're making their way out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. God has delivered them, and it has been this powerful demonstration of God's love and his justice, right? They have been in slavery, in bondage, probably sexual slavery, but also back-breaking slavery. You know, the Jews actually built the pyramids, and they had to do it by getting their own straw. You read the story. And God had mercy, compassion upon them, and he delivered them, and he led them through the Red Sea by this miraculous work. And he brings them into the wilderness, and they're making their way to the mountain of God. And as they're doing that, the older people are, are last in the caravan, and the children and the women you know, who are taking care of the children are the last in the caravan. And these, this tribe of people called the Amalekites see this huge caravan People And they've got all this stuff because it says they plundered Egypt, right? The Egyptians just like, whatever you want, it's yours. Like, no more plagues. <laughs> Mercy, right? So they've got all this stuff from Egypt, and they're making their way through. And so the Amalekites, this tribe comes, and they attack the rear of the caravan, and they begin to slaughter the elderly. They begin to slaughter the weak and taking advantage of them. And so God says, or Moses says to Joshua, Get an army together. They're not an army. They don't have an army. Get an army together. You're going to go out, and you're going to fight the Amalekites. You're going to defend us. And so Joshua and some men go out there, and they begin to fight, and this really weird thing happens. Moses takes the staff of God, and he lifts it up, and as he's doing that, all goes well in the battle. Joshua and his men, they're winning. Things are going really well. But as Moses, because he's old, he's in his 80s, as he gets tired, and just do this for, you know, 10 minutes, right? Any of you guys do yoga? It gets tiring. So Moses is old, and all of a sudden he just begins to like droop. And as he does that, they begin losing the battle. And so it happens that his brother and this guy named Hur, which is also really confusing, come up and hold his arms. And as they hold his arms, Moses and, you know, his arms stay lifted up, and the, the Israelites win the battle. They win. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And the Amalekites become this type of, you know, like a, a viper by the, by the wayside, a snare to the children of Israel. They're always like this thorn in their side. And it's this kind of overarching thing about how God is going to take care of Israel's enemies. Anyway, This is the first time God tells somebody to write the Bible. It's not what you would think, right? Like, of all the stories, it's just this little story here. A little snippet. But but think about this for a minute. The first story that God has people write down, as far as we know anyway, is a story that records God's deliverance, miraculous deliverance, a staff, right? Helps them prevail, God's staff. God's deliverance from those who would destroy his people and his purposes for them. It's a true story that is recorded by humans under the direction of Yahweh. And this is what we find again and again in the biblical record. Recorded stories by humans under the direction of God about God and his continual acts of salvation, about his covenant relationship with human beings and how humans are to live in relationship to this God. 
Anybody know where the second mention of writing the Bible is? We just read it the other day. Anybody? You just read it. People. All right, fine. I'm going to give you this one. Exodus 24. You read it on Thursday. I wrote it in my notes. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, the words of the covenant. They were to be remembered. So this is really fascinating if you think about it. What, what, what are the two things that are first written in the Bible? A story about God's salvation, and then the next thing is the, the, the agreement of the covenant. How to live in relationship to this God that delivers and rescues Those are the first two things that are written down in the Bible. God saves, and now how to live in relationship with this God of salvation. The rules of the covenant. And we find this again and again and again. Think about even what the Gospels are. They're the story of how God has saved humanity in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. And then the epistles are how we live in relationship to Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. And the Bible is just... You know, sometimes we think of the Bible as a linear story, and it is that, but the Bible is more musical, if you know what I mean. The Bible takes up these themes, like music will. It will play a part, and then that part will kind of back away, fade into the background, and then some other part will take over. And I'm thinking more of like, um, you know, like the Indiana Jones soundtrack. You know what I'm talking about? Like dun 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 I used to sing that all the time as I was a kid. Like if I was doing something exciting, it was like Indiana Jones was in my was in my head. But notice with Indiana Jones, next time you watch it, that theme will come. And you know what? It always comes in that part that I just hummed for you so perfectly. It always comes in when Indiana Jones is saving the day. It's this theme that comes in, and then it will fade out, and then it will come in again. And Scripture works like this, and it continually tells the story of God's redemption and how people are to live in light of that. And this is a theme that Scripture picks up again and again and again and again and again, and ultimately it finds its fulfillment. It's all pointing to Jesus the true and greater Moses, the true and greater Joshua, the true and greater Jacob, right? All these stories are playing the story of Jesus. And in Jesus, it's the crescendo. They find their, their fullness and their completeness in him. This is, what, this is what the Bible is. And this is how the Bible was recorded for us. So as you read through the Bible, you can see much of the material found in biblical books circulated in oral form and along with their written form. So I just told you how the Bible was written down and recorded. And as you read the Bible, this is what you'll see. Here's an example. Genesis keeps referring to a catalog of generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. Do you know what the book of Genesis is called in Hebrew? Take a wild guess. These are the generations. That's what it's called. It's a book about generations. These have been passed down either orally or in written form down to Abraham, down to Isaac, down to Jacob. They were passed on to Moses. Most of the material, therefore, was not put into writing immediately or nearly so with the events described. 
This is what we find when you start reading the Bible. What am I saying? The biblical books that became part of the scriptural canon themselves were the end product of successive traditions, probably to shorter text. So this means that many biblical books had multiple authors over a relatively long period of time. So you know sometimes we're like 66 books. It's like, well, who are you asking? Because the Jews have, I think, 26 books in the Old Testament. We have 39. Then we have 27 in the New. So it really depends on who you ask how many books there are. And there were like 40 different authors. Actually, probably a lot, lot more than that. They're writing the story together. They're adding different parts. I mean, even as you read through the book of Samuel and the book of Chronicles, you'll find, well, this is from the book of Jasher. Well, this is the book about the wars of the kings. You're like, what book is that? And they start referencing all these other things that they got this story from, right? So what we find in Scripture, many biblical books with multiple authors over a relatively long period of time. And this, I mean, it doesn't take rocket science to see this. Like, just even think about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is like any other hymnal. Somebody collected all of these songs and put them together. And that's actually how we should see most of the biblical, the Old Testament books. Somebody gathered all the stories and put them together. So, here's an example. Moses might have gathered together most of the information and story of the Pentateuch, but he can't be the final author. And I know people who, when they found this out, it ruined their faith. No, 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 that can't be. I've been told my whole life Moses is the author. Well, he probably is, and then he probably isn't at the same time. Why? Did Moses really write that he was the meekest man who ever lived? The meekest man who ever lived cannot write that he is the meekest man that ever lived. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way, right? It records Moses' death and events afterwards. Some would say, well, this is where prophecy kicks in. Moses knew the future. There is prophetic tellings in the Bible. This isn't one of them. I'm sorry, it just isn't. And so all this to say, we're making the Bible do something it's not supposed to do. We're making the Bible say something it's actually not saying. And no wonder people lose their faith over it because people are dogmatic about this. How dare you? You don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? You don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture? I do, but I don't believe what you're saying about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. That's the problem. So it is, the, the, I think, a challenge to the church to go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about itself. So Moses can't be the final author of the Pentateuch, but claiming that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, as we know it today, does not negate a claim to divine inspiration. It simply asks us to reconsider how that inspiration occurred within the dynamics of a human community. Just because the Bible, and here I'm referring specifically to the Old Testament, has human authors, editors who came along and added to the story. Think about Genesis 38. You, you begin to read the story of Joseph, and it's getting exciting, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery, and all of a sudden it's like, pause, and let's tune into the life of Judah. At that point in the story, even in the time of Moses, does the tribe of Judah matter? It doesn't. It's just a tribe amidst the other tribes. You know when the tribe of Judah begins to matter? 
when David becomes king because he's of the tribe of Judah and when God gives the promise to David that from his line, the Messiah will come. So what I think happened, and I've studied this a little bit, what I think happened is that the story of Joseph was a thing that they had that was recorded. Moses had it together, passed it on, and I think an editor way down the line after the time of David sticks the story of Judah in the story of Joseph because it becomes important to know and to understand the line of Judah because that's where Messiah is going to come from. And then when we get to Jesus, the Messiah, it's fascinating because we find out that Jesus, the King, the Messiah, God's anointed Savior is in the line of prostitutes. He's in the line of of, um, incest. That these are the kinds of people that God identifies with and has in his family line. It becomes powerful when we, when we see the story. Maybe this is a conversation for a classroom. I'm sorry if I'm like boring people to tears. I love this stuff. I'm like getting sweaty talking about it, right? <laughs> Just because people came along and added to the story, made comments, insights, introductions. Think about Psalm 1. So we'd say all this stuff about the Psalms and how you read it and what they are, and then you open to Psalm 1 and you're like, this isn't a Psalm. It's not. It's a preface. It's an introduction saying, this is how you do the Psalms. This is how you read this book. This is what you do with God's word. And man, I am so glad for the chronicler, whoever he or she was, that came along and put that there for us so that we can understand how to read the book of Psalms. But here's the thing, you guys, you find this all over the Bible. Well, the children of Israel don't eat the hip, you know, muscle on the bone to this day. To what day? It probably wasn't written at the time. It was later comments, and, and, and as they thought upon the word of God, applying it in their context, and that's really what we have in the Old Testament. So just because whoever wrote Samuel, it wasn't Samuel, Posthumously, just letting you know, right, from the grave. Just because the writers of the Bible wrote and and gathered and the way that it was combined uh, wasn't just one single author of a book, it doesn't take away from its divine inspiration. If anything, it adds to the depth and beauty and power of the work. It's so fascinating, too, you guys. If you actually look at, you know, so we have the Bible laid out, the Old Testament laid out from Genesis to Malachi, right? And you'll find as we're doing the year of biblical literacy, the Jews actually had it totally different. They had Genesis to um, Chronicles. And it makes a lot of sense, actually, some references that Jesus makes in the New Testament. But here's a really fascinating thing. So we have uh, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Ruth is like way, way ahead. Uh, it's near Samuel. And we have Ruth in there so that we can understand who David is and his line and what's happening there. This is the way the Jews have that section of scripture. This is just a little fascinating thing. The Jewish Bible has Proverbs. No, sorry. It has I think it's Song of Solomon, and it's celebrating marriage. And then it has Proverbs 31, a a woman who fears the Lord. Like, who can find such a woman is the question, as it talks about this woman who is bold and courageous, and she's not like, you know, this docile, stay-at-home type of woman at all. Like, she is like Rosie the Riveteer, you know? Proverbs 31, Rosie the Riveteer, like they're buddies or something. 
Um, Where can you find such a woman, the Jews ask? And their next book is the book of Ruth. And as you begin to read the book of Ruth, it's fascinating. Ruth is a Moabite. And Moab is the cursed land under the curse of God, rejected, not part of the promises. Where do you find a woman who fears the Lord? You find her in the land of Moab. That's where you find her. And she's a Gentile who trusts in the God of Yahweh and becomes a Jew. And it's like this incredible story of redemption. Anyway, all that to say, like, but then the way we set it up, it, it works too. Right? Like, wow, a woman who fears the Lord, and then we're going to read Song of Song, we're going to read about marriage, and it's beautiful. And so even the way that you put the books together, like, you can do different things with it, and it's amazing, right? So just the way that we set it up, and sometimes the way that we think, like, oh, it has to be this way. There was someone I was talking to this week, and they were like, this person I was talking to only believes in the red letters. It's like, oh, Oh, that's really unfortunate. Do you know that that's only like a hundred-year-old thing? The red light? Like you think, like, John was like, where's my red pen? You know, like, I got a Jesus quote here. Dang it. You know, like, that's not what happened. And so that I can't trust anything but the red letters. And I know, I know it is funny, but it's tragic, too, because what we're doing is we're elevating a certain part of Scripture over others. And Paul would say, no, 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 no. All Scripture is God-breathed. And we do cherish and love the words of Jesus, but they are not more authoritative than other texts of Scripture. They aren't. That's not what the Bible's telling us. They agree. They work together. They work off one another. All that to say, the human fingerprints on the Old Testament should not be a stumbling block to Christians. The Bible doesn't hide its origins or authorship. Just think about the book, the Gospel of John. John is very upfront about why he is writing. These aren't just facts about Jesus. This isn't a complete biography of the life of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, does the Bible, does John have an agenda? Yes, he does. John has an agenda. He has left out a lot of information, a lot of stories, but he has told these specific true stories in such a way that those who heard it and read it might believe in Jesus. The Gospels are not objective biography. The writers had an agenda. John wants you to experience the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. The Bible has an agenda. We simply don't have a golden tablet Bible. We have something much, much more powerful. The true story of God interacting at various times and in various ways with human beings. God and men, women and God wrestling. God God with and alongside humanity. That's what we have. And so... The origins of Scripture are very like the story of Scripture itself. Eugene Peterson, from his Eat This book, he says, The Scriptures are the revelation of a personal, relational, incarnational God to actual communities of men and women with names in history. The witnesses to the revelation are real writers who do their writing and witnessing in the full light of day and with the confirmation of their worshiping communities 
everything is out in the open. And I would like to say this. The origins of the Bible are also out in the open. You guys, the Bible is not trying to hide its origins, its human origins from us. It's very upfront about how the Bible was put together. We need to open our eyes. We need to be willing to challenge the dogma that has been passed down to us and do deconstruction with our faith. In a, in a, and we need to do that in community with one another. So I'm going to leave that off for a minute and take my last two minutes, apparently, to talk about the errors in Scripture. So because the Bible is a human and divine book and has human origins, then the Bible is full of errors, right? It has to be. People are fallen. People are broken, right? They get it wrong. Now, to many, the origin of the Bible can be summed up in this way. It's a translation of a translation of an interpretation of an oral tradition. And Bart Ehrman and other people mocking the origins of the Bible say, come on, I mean, you ever played telephone? This person tells you this thing. You hear it, you pass it on to that person, and you pass it on to that person, you pass it on to that person. How accurate do you think it is by the time it gets to the end? You know, the, the, the bound book. We've all played telephone, and if you haven't, you're missing out. Um, right? So this is, this is the people use this as an example to, to make this point. This statement is a common misunderstanding of both Christians and non-Christians. Translations like the King James Version are derived from existing copies of ancient manuscripts, such as the Masoretic texts of the Old Testament and the Greek uh, Textus Receptus New Testament, and are not translations of texts translated from other interpretations. Instead, the, Bible, the primary differences between today's Bible translations are merely related to how translators interpret a word or sentence from the original language, right? So it's not like, oh yeah, like somebody had it in Hebrew, and then they translated to Greek, and then into Latin, and then, you know, like all these like different tribal languages, and then Luther had it, and then he passed it on to Tyndale, and then we've got it. That's not how it works. The, the, the scholars of today are going back to the original text that we have. Still in existence. And they are translating it directly. So let's talk for a second about Old Testament reliability. So another charge against the origin of the Bible is the reliability of the manuscripts from which today's Bibles are translated. There is actually widespread evidence for absolute reliability. There are more than 14 thousand existing Old Testament manuscripts and fragments copied throughout the Middle East, Mediterranean and European regions that agree dramatically with each other. And in addition, these texts agree with the Greek translation of the New Testament, which was around at the time of Jesus, the Septuagint. Uh, this was actually um, probably finished in the third century BC. So even 300 years before Jesus, we had a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Maybe some of you. You're sleeping. Wake up. This is almost over, right? You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in Israel in the 1940s and 50s. These also provided a phenomenal evidence for the reliability of the ancient um, Jewish scriptures. Before the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Hebrew scribes who copied Jewish scriptures dedicated their lives to preserving the accuracy of these holy books, right? The scribes went to phenomenal lengths to ensure manuscript uh, reliability. They were highly trained. They were meticulous uh, in all their observations. They counted every letter, 
word, and paragraph against master scrolls. A single error required the immediate destruction of the entire text. So we've got tons of facts backing the reliability of the Old Testament. And not only that, but as Christians, we have Jesus constantly quoting the Old Testament. Constantly, right? So let's talk about New Testament reliability real quick. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament is is equally as dramatic. We have 5,300 known copies and fragments in the original Greek, 800 of which were copied before 1000 AD. Some manuscript texts date to the early 2nd and 3rd centuries, with the time between the original autographs and our earliest existing copies being a remarkable short 60 years. Now, that might sound like a long time to you, but this, this surpasses uh, manuscript reliability of any other ancient writing that we, that we trust is authentic today. Okay, so here's just an example. Did we put this on the slide? Uh, there it is. Okay, so look, Julius Caesar, the Gaelic Wars, 10 manuscripts remain with the earliest one dating 1,000 years. And people aren't like, oh, that's, that's garbage. Julius Caesar never did any of that. Pliny the Younger's history, 750 years. Thucydides, terrible mother naming that. Um, <laughs> 1,300 years elapsed, Herodotus history. Like, people reference this stuff all the time to get context for what was happening in the world at that time. We use this all the time, and nobody is doing the textual criticism on these guys that they do on the Bible, and yet the Bible is like light years ahead of all this. How do we know that anything that happened in history is written down for us? Well, the documentation for both the Old and the New Testament is incredible. So are there errors in the Bible? Yes, there are. There are. And you need to know that. There are errors in the Bible, and all of a sudden you're like, oh no, which ones? Like, that God loves me. I knew it. I knew that was the error. It's a lie, right? He couldn't. So there's a Greek expert. I, I cheated. You know, I, I got these from somebody else, but... There's a guy named Ezra Abbott. He was a professor of New Testament textual criticism. He's still quoted today. He was a new textual... Professor of New Testament Textual Criticism at Harvard University. And he, it, textual criticism kind of began with this guy. And he said this, about 1920ths of the errors are various rather than rival readings. And about 1920th, 95% of the rest make no appreciable difference in the sense of the passage. The text is 99.75% accurate. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said the real concern is with about a thousandth part of the entire text. So the reconstructed text of the New Testament is 99.9% free from real concern. Could quote Philip Schaff. How many of you guys have seen Bart Ehrman on like, who was he with? Um, he, was with he was like, he's been interviewed by Colbert. And all these kind of people. And he's like the leader of textual criticism. He hates Jesus. He hates the Bible. (laughs) And this is what Bart Ehrman says. You ready? In fact, most of the changes found in early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort of another. 
and here's from Philip Schaff. He estimated that the, of the thousands of variations in all the manuscripts known in his day, only 50 were of real significance, and of these, not one affected an article of faith. Not one of them had to do with doctrine. It has to do with punctuation, as Bart Ehrman says. It's a slip of the pen. I mean, this guy is not a fan of the Bible. He would love to disprove the Bible, and he's like, yeah, like, there aren't any doctrinal errors or inconsistencies. Like, yeah, there just aren't. And you're like, okay, wow. Like, that's fascinating. Okay, and then just like last thing, just for fun, this is for me. I'm sorry. This is for me. What belongs in the New Testament and who decided? So Constantine decided as a power play, right? Not even close. The books that belong to what we call the New Testament were in circulation in the early church. Um, the church, along with the apostles, considered these authoritative. The books that didn't catch were because they were either not associated with apostles or leaders of the early church or because they were heretical. Okay, so this idea that Constantine comes around and he's like, these books, and I'm going to use them, and I'm going to control people, and it's like, again, the Bible has an agenda. Yeah, what do you mean by that? The Bible does have an agenda, but what do you mean by that? And if you look at what people try to say about Constantine controlling people with the Bible, like, it's just false. I mean, read about the leaders of the Bible and in the early church, the apostles. Did they have great lives? Were they, like, using Bible as power play? They weren't. Even when Peter talks about being a shepherd under the chief shepherd, do you know the word that he uses for Jesus, chief shepherd, is not this glorious term? It means foreman. That's what it means. He's the foreman of our salvation. He's the site manager. (laughs) I mean, it's like, these guys weren't trying to control people in the way that we think they were trying to control people. The Bible does have an agenda. We'll talk about that one more time. Okay, well, what about Dan Brown? The Da Vinci Code. The Lost or Gnostic Gospels. And I said, this is all for me, right? I'm totally doing this for me. Okay, so these date the 4th century A.D., generous 2nd century, and the Gospel of Thomas, okay? We're going to finish with this, and then we'll conclude. You tell me. Ready? Here's a quote, the, the last bit of the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary Magdalene leave us, for females do not deserve life. Hold. Jesus said, Look. I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of God. Wrap your head around that one. (laughs) You're like, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Well, you tell me. Like, does that sound like anything you've ever read in the Bible? Jesus, you know, go out into all the world and make all the females male. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, it's like, you find the exact opposite. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek. All of them are firstborn sons of God, according to the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. And so these Gnostic gospels were thrown out because they were totally and completely inconsistent with the message of the Bible, with the theology of the Bible. So these claims, they're just not accurate, but what is important is that we go to our Bible and see how they're not accurate. Now, it's good and necessary to talk about these things. It's not my favorite thing, to be honest. Um, But especially in our day and age, to be sure of the reliability of Scripture, there will be many temptations in your life to challenge Scripture, to reject Scripture, to ask yourself, is this really from God or is this from humans? And I hope you come back to this truth. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is. 
It is given by inspiration of God. And I think our, our journey is to wrestle with God. Call upon me and I will answer you, says God, and I will show you great and mighty things. When God shows Habakkuk the vision of how he's going to judge Israel for their sin, God, how could you? How could you do this? How could you do this? And God says, listen, and I'll tell you how. It's a conversation with God. It's wrestling with God. It isn't just like, okay, fine. I guess that's just the way it is. All right, fine. I'm just going to go my way. Then No, God is calling us to wrestle with him. So I, I challenge you, church, journey in this, to wrestle with the God of scriptures in order to be shaped and formed by them. And I gave this message, and it needs to go along with all the messages that have come before, but to say this, you can trust the scriptures. They are authentic. They are the same scriptures Jesus had, the stories and letters concerning Jesus that were used by the early church. And again, I'll be perfectly honest, the scripture have an agenda. God wants to bring you out of spiritual darkness relational confusion, addiction, and slavery. He wants to bring you out of isolation and into true community. He wants to fill you with his life and make you a whole human being who will reflect his goodness, righteousness, justice, and peace out into the world around you. He wants to prepare you to rule and reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. The Bible has an agenda. God wants to bless you and through you to bless all people. Lord, we pray that we would be a church who knows our Bible, who knows your word, and doesn't just um, throw out platitudes. Keep us from that, Lord. Keep us from uh, straw men arguments that discount the intellect of the person on the other side. Lord, would we be gracious? Lord, would we be so relational in our conversations about the Bible, about life, about differences and disagreements? Lord, would we wrestle with one another as you, Lord, have wrestled with humanity throughout history? And yes, Lord, would we wrestle with the scriptures, Lord, in order to know you, to understand you, more fully, Lord, to be shaped and formed by you. But, Lord, help us to be people of the book. And so we can see, Lord, more and more and more and more the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your ways. How deep your love how deep your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would take us personally, communally, deeper and deeper into that knowledge and deeper and deeper into that story. For your glory. Amen.